Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Mind. In today's episode, I'm joined by Martha Acosta, who's a senior moderator with Harvard Business Publishing and a sought-after speaker, facilitator, and expert in human and organizational learning. She helps organizations navigate the complexity of human systems in their operations. With 25 years of experience as a consultant and educator, Martha has helped countless leaders in high-reliability industries to manage volatility, uncertainty, and ambiguity for improved safety. She earned her doctorate in organizational learning from George Washington University, and today she shares a tremendous amount of knowledge. While Martha is clearly a thought leader and an expert in her own right, I think what you'll find in this conversation is that she is also possibly first and foremost a lifelong learner, and it is that curiosity and her willingness to ask the big questions that really made this conversation um, stand out to me, and I took away a lot. Some of the main things we talked about are how to build the capacity for error tolerance and how to respond to failure effectively. We talked about creating psychological safety and some of the misconceptions that come along with that. One of the big questions that we were asking is, what does it actually mean for organizations to be systems of meaning and how strategic leaders need to look at that from a systems view to understand the meaning of what's happening in the organization? And that it's through the understanding of the meaning within the organization that they can actually see inside the culture. We talked about how soft skills are actually the hard skills and that employee dissatisfaction is actually the gap between what is and what we see as possible. And without further ado, a welcome, Martha Acosta. Well, I've been really looking forward to this, and uh, I know it'll be just a rich conversation. As I was getting ready this morning and I was thinking about you, this uh, like description came to mind and I don't even know that it's, that it's fair, but I, I thought I should share this with, with Martha. And I mean, this is a, as a compliment, but I, I find, I find myself being intimidated by your, uh, your depth of knowledge and curiosity. Not that you're intimidating, but that right. I just, I, I'm like, I'm, it's overwhelming. I'm like, she is just so um, knowledgeable and yet still so curious. And it's, it's a great quality to have. And I just wanted to share that with you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, in fact, in thinking about today, I was thinking about how important curiosity is yeah. for a leader and how we really need to change our we really need to change our expectation that once you become an expert you're supposed to sort of sit in your expertise and have all of the answers 
and stop being curious, you know, that the worldview all of a sudden becomes fixed because you know everything there is to know. And of course, we know really scientifically that that there's very few things that are that are fixed, even in, you know, we always thought of like the physics and math and that sort of thing as being the positivistic sciences, right? Where there is, yes, the hard sciences where there is a right answer. But even in those sciences, we realize that, you know, things are, are, I don't want to use the word relative, but things but our understanding of the world and our mental models about how we describe the world through mathematics or physics has to change as we expand our access to the world, right? So, and not even expand, like particle physics, you're getting smaller. Yeah. And then the, the things that we see are laws change. And, uh, and so we always have to be flexible in our expertise and be curious if we're going to continue to adapt and learn and grow. The, the crazy tension that exists is that um, when we put more uh, responsibility on leaders, essentially their role becomes, I get to make more decisions now than I did before, but that's mm-hmm. one of the, 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 the key traits. Um, there's the assumption that I'm supposed to have more of the right answers. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I need to be right more often. Right. And it goes, it goes against this notion of that in order to actually lead more effectively, we need to be more curious because there is this um, presumption that is actually, no, it's less curiosity. It's more knowing, right? And I was mm-hmm. just talking to um, an executive that I'm coaching yesterday, and this very idea came up. It's like, I have this decision to make. I think I know what I want to do, but I'm so worried. What if I don't get it right? (laughs) And was just struggling with like, well, what if you don't get it right? Then what will you do? And you'll come up with something else and maybe you'll get it right. And something will happen. And then all of a sudden it won't be right anymore. (laughs) And that's (laughs) out of your control. So it's not that you got it wrong to begin with. And um, how do we change that paradigm? when it is so ingrained in, when we look to leaders, we see them as the experts. When we look to ourselves and say, I need to grow as a leader, I need to become more of the expert or the person with the right answers to go to. Um, Especially when we think about the type of work that you've done so much in safety, Mm -hmm. the room for error there is life and death. Mm -hmm. However, what we're not doing in safety is trying to eliminate error because you can't. Human beings um, are error prone. We are, you know, that human beings and the environment and everything is uncertain. So what we're trying to do in safety is build capacity in our organizations, in our operations and psychologically with people, uh, build the capacity to be error tolerant, to be able to respond and, to, and, and mitigate risk and be able to respond to failure in an effective way. So this idea that safety is eliminating risk and eliminating failure 
is actually a big problem. And so in my work in safety, what I'm trying to get people to do is to change their attitudes towards risk and failure, to um, recognize that experimentation is something that's important. When you you mention the the story of of a leader um, being afraid of making a decision that's wrong, what came to my mind is that leader needs to learn, you know, to experience the sort of the freedom that comes from learning to be experimental. And in fact, every decision that we make is an experiment. An experiment is just a hypothesis is just a best guess about what's happening right now. And then when you act, you get information to tell you whether you know, where your best guess falls, you know, in the world. And that information is super valuable to make your next best guess. This idea that we're going to have the right answer is such a fallacy. And I think, you know, you asked the question of like, how do we change that paradigm? I think we change that paradigm when we allow more leaders more people, different people that become leaders. And yeah. we recognize that leadership is a practice and it's not something that you find the right person that meets all of this, you know, criteria that we think we need. And then we put that person in the position. So by recognizing that leadership is a practice, what you can bring anybody sort of up to being a leader, you can create opportunities for leadership. And it's really just a matter of who is willing to be curious, like you mentioned before, who is able to connect all of these relationships that make things happen, who is good at asking questions and uh, and observing how things change and experimenting in order to bring a large group of people or a small group of people along to achieve something meaningful. I mean, that's really it. Well, we are, we're, we're stuck in, in labeling people based on their competencies or you know, these skills. When you talk about leadership as a practice, how do we change the paradigm? How mm-hmm. do you in, invite everyone to the table to be a leader? And, and I love the phrase you used a moment ago, to operate in a place where they can be more uh, air tolerant, I think mm-hmm. is what you, how you phrased it. Yeah. Um, which is absolutely what it is because as experimenters, we are essentially hy- testing our hypothesis for errors. So there is an inherent tolerance to it, but how do we make that shift? Because it seems so risky, especially when we bestow leaders with a great deal of responsibility, power, authority, um, compensation, and influence. So the risky piece where it, and you said it beautifully, feels risky. So that risk is psychological risk. That's interpersonal risk. That is the risk around, you know, being ashamed, being, you know, feeling like you let somebody else down, right? And how you manage that risk is by creating an environment of psychological safety. And so not only, you know, I talk a lot about psychological safety and I know you've had 
some, uh, you know, you've done some podcasts on it, but psychological safety, the leader has to create it for their teams. And it is part, it's an interpersonal dynamic that's pretty fragile, right? But we also have to think, you know, the senior leaders who are leading people leaders also have to recognize that in the organization, we need to create we need to create more of a culture of psychological safety for the leaders to to work in. And so, you know, you know, an organization is not an org chart or brick and mortar or anything. An organization is a system of meaning that is shared by the people who are in that organization. And the strategic leaders, the high-level leaders need to have a systems view of the meaning that's happening in their organization. And that's how they manage strategy going forward in the outside world. And that's also how they manage the culture inside the organization. And people leaders also are, are dealing with meaning but they're dealing with it more on, you know, what roles do people have? What processes and procedures do we use? How do we communicate? And they are also creating psychological safety or not, or destroying it in every project that they work on. So I think one of the big things that, that we need to recognize as we develop leaders, and I've been developing leaders for decades now, is that with these things that we call soft skills actually are the hard skills because that actually is, those actually are the tools of leadership, communication and, you know, thinking about how do people interpret what's going on around us in our environment and how do I manage that interpretation and learn and change and influence people to do things differently, see things differently, adapt to whatever our new challenge is. Martha, will you unpack psychological safety for a moment? Because psychological safety, um, compassionate leadership, there are a lot of these words that become a part of the zeitgeist. And this is, you know, this is the kind of the, the flavor of leadership of today. Mm-hmm. And it all comes from a very good place. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I often find that it often gets uh, misunderstood or there's mm-hmm. myths that are created about it, or it seems like it's something that you um, label yourself as, you know, I'm a leader of psychological safety as opposed to, it's not, uh, it's not something you get to call yourself, it is something you create. And um, hopefully those that experience it would then maybe say that about you as a leader, but you never get to claim it. No. And it's, it's a state of being. You know, what is it and what do you think are some of the biggest myths um, or misconceptions around it? There are so many misconceptions. So psychological safety, if I use Amy Edmondson's definition, is just basically a shared belief amongst a group of people that it is safe to take interpersonal risks. And if we look at that, we realize that it is a it's a it's a dynamic that happens within a team, within a group of people. And dynamics are you know, they, they come and they go, right? This is something that needs to be maintained, just like the beliefs need to be maintained. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest myths that I've heard is, you know, and people, you know, well-meaning people 
is like, you know, that person is psycho is psychologically confident. We can have psychological safety because we're bringing people into this team who have, you know, high emotional intelligence, or they're confident enough to be able to take that risk. And, and that again, puts the emphasis on the team member, the worker to be the right kind of person to have a psychologically safe situation. But you can have a super emotionally intelligent person come into a dynamic that they know is just, you know, toxic and they are going to protect themselves. That is an emotionally intelligent thing to do to protect themselves in a toxic situation. Why we need psychological safety and is in order for people to speak out about what's wrong, to be able to engage in cognitive conflict. So another big myth is that psychological safety is about everybody getting along and everything is great. No, in psychological safety, we want to be able to, you, we want to see people contradict each other and disagree with each other. Another thing is you want to see people express their diversity. So one of the issues that, of course, we have in trying to build more diverse workforces is that we bring people into the mix and then they cover their differences because they want to fit in. And it does not feel safe to talk about you know, how you're different. And it's not just the egregious things that we hear about around, you know, an African-American woman not being able to wear her braids, but it is about, you know, we just don't want to talk about what's different about us. In fact, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a a well-known bias called the common knowledge effect. We are having to deal with much more complex problems now. So organizations are pulling together ad hoc teams of experts. And what happens is, even though those experts all have different expertise, they end up talking about what they have in common rather than what they have, what they know that's different. So we even hide our expertise at times in order to feel safe in the group. So psychological safety is about you can feel safe in this dynamic and be really different, be wrong, (laughs) and be, you know, and contradict somebody else. And that's what we need for learning, ultimately. And that's what we need for change. And in that dynamic, it allows someone to contradict themselves, to have productive conflict, uh, to speak their truth that may be in direct conflict with another person's truth. And I think Mm -hmm. specifically when we're talking about issues of race and gender, when an African-American woman is speaking about her experience and other people, and I was just speaking to a friend of mine about this yesterday, uh, dismiss their experience to say, well, no, that's not true. How how can you dismiss one person's experience? It, it It is their truth. And yet in this bias, we're looking for commonality. And when people get dismissed, you know, what's the impact of that on psychological safety? And how do you even come back from that place? Right. And I, I you know, so I am a woman of color, right? I, I am uh, originally from Colombia, South America. I'm of mixed race. And I grew up 
in, you know, I grew up in, in the sixties and seventies in, in Texas and in a part of Texas at the time, this was before really, there was a huge immigration into that part of the world. And so I didn't really fit in very many places and, and I never really fit into what were commonly, and this has happened. I've lived all over the world. Now I've had this fantastic career and, you know, it's really hard for people when they can't kind of find where you fit. And this is where one of the things that we need to let go of in our teams and create that safety to not fit. I can't tell you how many times in my life, and of course it happens a lot less now, that people have asked me, what are you? And I think back about those experiences and I, you know, ran away from that, right? I just, that was just, well, I couldn't do that. Now I think, and I coach people to lean in to other people's biases because they don't really know that they're there. And, and first assume they're not trying to hurt me. They're being curious. And I can think now of all of the questions that I could have asked to lean in and understand why are you asking me? What am I? <laughs> um, and be, and now I'm, you know, much more mature. I can be more vulnerable about when you asked me that, wow, that really made me feel subhuman, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and to be able to have that conversation. Now, in order to do that, it, we really do have to, you know, I don't know what the word, I mean, it's, it's just be able to let ourselves be uncomfortable. And in, and it's really important for leaders to demonstrate what it's like to sit in your discomfort in a social situation, to be vulnerable. And, and that is what signals to everybody else in the room, I, I can be uncomfortable with this. It's okay for me to be angry you know, anger's hard, but it's okay for me to be angry and still not justify my anger, you know, because that sort of righteous anger sometimes creates more of that division where I'm right, you're wrong. We need to be able to live in not having to be right or wrong for a while until we really understand each other better. You know, Marsha Rosenberg's work on nonviolent communication is all about being able to communicate in a way that isn't about things being right or wrong, yeah. or communicating in a way about, about what is without judgment and curiosity. I, I, I'm extremely curious about this idea of um, pushing in and challenging people's biases. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that seems like a very scary notion for people to do that. And I don't mean challenging. Okay. Being curious about. So mm-hmm. let's go back to Marshall Rosenberg. The yeah. principle of nonviolent communication is hearing people's needs. Yes. So a, 
you know, so let's say someone asked me, what are you? And I try and hear the need there. And I, I formulate a question that is about trying to understand why they said that and what the need might be behind it. And Marshall Rosenberg says that really the need many times is behind an emotion. Mm -hmm. An emotion is going to show us that there's a need there. And so just acknowledging the emotion is an, an important part of getting to the place where we can go there. Um, and I think, you know, as leaders, if we acknowledge the emotion in the dynamics of our team, that will be huge, right? That we, it's not just we're talking about ideas in a team meeting, we're talking about feelings and not pseudo feelings. I talk about pseudo feelings all the time because we've gotten to this point in our culture where we say, I feel that blah. Mm -hmm. And what it is, isn't I feel that way. I think this. It's a thought. It's a thought. And because you couch it in the language of feeling, it can't be challenged. So it becomes a way to, um, you know, put out your opinion, your judgment, right? And of course, in, in nonviolent communication, we want to reduce those judgments. We put out your judgment and then call it a feeling so that it can't be questioned. And so we need to get away from that and recognize that, that, that as ourselves, we need to practice understanding what is a real feeling and what is a judgment and, and get into a place where we can question our judgments. And I think, you know, leaders are the ones who create that environment. So leaders, that's an important practice. I think an important practice is for us to, and I love Marshall, Marshall Rosenberg's term, let the jackals run, you know, just th look at all of your judgments. And then there's a great technique from Byron Katie where we question those judgments to see if they're true. And that questioning, the most important part there is decoupling from those judgments, right? Um, you know, uh, Buckminster Fuller, he wrote this great essay after his wife died about ego suicide. <laughs> and we know, I mean, I don't know. I kind of think the ego gets a bad rap sometimes. We obviously have it for a reason. Um, there's a reason why we say that intelligent animals are ones that can identify themselves that have a strong sense of self. You know, they give that test to you know, chimpanzees or elephants where they put a mark, a blue mark on their face and if they can see it in a mirror, then they have that sense of self. Well, ego is really just ourself. The question is, are we going to be slaves to our ego or are we going to be you know, masters of our ego, right? And go, and go forward by recognizing how we're preserving ourselves psychologically and then allowing ourselves to break down some of those, some of those barriers that, that keep us too isolated from other people. 
one of the things that I talk about all the times is an important leadership practice is developing relationships and networking. And, you know, everybody hates the thought of networking, especially I tend to work with scientists and engineers and, you know, serious folk. And they are like, networking, that's for, you know, salespeople. (laughs) But when I explain that networking is just having meaningful relationships with people that you have mutual benefit with each other in order to be able to move forward. And that you actually can't do anything without relationships. People recognize that, but that you're building those relationships in a conscious way, um, then people get it. But, um, but those connections are so important. And then the meaningful relationship Another important principle of networking is that you have to have relationships with people who aren't like you and you don't necessarily like, but that sounds like a paradox, right? I want you to have relationships with people that are different from you and you probably don't want to invite to dinner, you know, you probably, but it's supposed to be meaningful. (laughs) So can you have a meaningful relationship when you don't necessarily like somebody? And, I, and, and yes, I mean, do you think so? I do 100%. And I see a connection here between um, what you were saying earlier around organizations being a place of meaning and these relationships needing to be meaningful. Yeah. How are you defining that, Martha? And, and, and what does it mean? Because I, I do agree that um, we would all benefit by having broader, more diverse relationships with people that have different points of view. If you I mean if you think about the political context of the United States, mm-hmm. we should all sit down with people that have opposing views and seek to understand and you know let the jackals run and then assess our judgments afterwards. But that is so much um, more difficult than you know just to say it because it exposes us to being uh, wrong or hurt or threatened, mm-hmm. um, challenging our own biases that we're not aware of. Mm-hmm. So how do you help leaders get to a place where they can um, identify what that shared meaning could be in a relationship where it may not be readily present or uh, obvious? Well, I think another way that we can talk about shared meaning is also shared purpose. People are very motivated by outcomes, right? And that, you know, taking care of our ego, right? And, and you know, it serving us means seeing ourself in those outcomes. And so that's just really purpose. So one of the things that I talk about often with leaders is talk about purpose more, identify purpose, have discussions about purpose, about where everyone's purpose goes into that. And that means getting to know your team a little bit and understanding what they love and why they're there. And even, you know, even uh, people who might be there for the paycheck and what they really want to do is ride around the country on their Harley. In a way, that's still that's still what they're doing in that job is in service to that. And if they can bring that Harley riding self into their job to some extent, at least in the way that they create connections with other people, 
that's really meaningful and useful in helping the organization drive towards its purpose. So it's not that everybody, you know, to have a shared purpose, everybody needs to have the same reason for wanting to go towards that purpose. And so what it does is it drives leaders to let go so much of the expertise about how do we do things, but driving them to have better expertise in why we do things. And why we do things and what matters to each person and then creating space for them to bring that into the organization, even if it's not directly related to the work itself. Yeah. And it's hard because you probably get promoted into a supervisor or a management position because you were really good as an inner, as a, a individual contributor, you were yeah. really good at what you do. And so then you realize it's a hard thing when you realize that what made you successful in your previous job is not what's going to make you successful in your new job. And that's when, you know, really being able to lean into learning is so important, getting excited, that growth mindset of getting excited about the opportunities in your gaps, you know, your skill gaps. Yeah. Well, that goes back to your point about the ego, because oftentimes those folks that were the expert individual contributor, there was an ego component to that. Everyone Mm -hmm. told them you're the best at this. You're so good and talented and they probably liked it. And then they get moved into a leadership position where they're now responsible for other people to do that thing and to get the credit for those things. So what role does the, 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 the change in I love what you said before. It's not about letting go of the ego. It is a part of us. I often think about, you know, our, our inner critic, our inner judge will never go away. It is a part of us. It's our job to change our relationship to it yeah. so that we understand what purpose it's serving. So when we- exactly. So in one case where you let, like if your ego runs you, then your ego being threatened and changing from a place where you are the expert to a place where there are skill gaps. And then you try and find, you know, then your ego is looking for where can I have this dominance, right? And so then it wants to dominate in, you know, being the person in charge and do that because I said so, because I know, I know, right? If you change your relationship to your ego, where you recognize that your ego helps you create purpose and meaning in your life, but you want to have control over it instead of you, then you can through, you know, reflection and humility and all of those pieces, then you can sort of show (laughs) your ego. Here's, here's where you can, um, find some fulfillment. You know, what I started out as an instructional designer and I'm geeky. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that about me, but I I love that about you. (laughs) And I was really terrified in, in getting up to speak in front of people. And I didn't know why, because I, I don't have, like I did acting in high school and, you know, it wasn't that I was worried about being, you know, I didn't have any skill in public speaking. It was more about that didn't make sense to me and my ego. And it didn't, 
I just didn't want to stand up in front of people. What the story I had in my head was if I stand in front of people and I'm seen, if I'm seen, I will be judged. I was perfectly happy being judged by the product of my work, of my design. I had always gotten tons of praise for how smart I am and how creative I am. And I could put out my product as me. And there was a little distance between that being judged and me as a person being judged. And so a lot of times when you put yourself up in the spotlight, whether it's standing in front of a classroom or if it's being a leader, that fear of not being liked, that fear of not belonging is an existential threat. And how I made that change for my ego was one, I had a hard time sort of putting myself out there as an expert, but I'm, you know, my doctorate is in human organizational learning. So I could say, you know what, I'm an expert learner. <laughs> I, I am feeling really, I feel very uncomfortable saying I'm an expert in leadership or I am expert in safety, but I do feel pretty comfortable saying that I'm an expert learner. And then the other thing is I went to my knowledge base about how people learn. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter if people like me when I'm standing in front of the room, it's about them. And as an instructional designer, I was trying to create an environment where people could learn. Well, as an instructor, as a public speaker, you know, as a teacher, I am creating, I'm managing the dynamic in that room, the meaning in that room in order to create an environment for other people to learn. So it's not about me it's about them. And the minute I could stop thinking about me, then I was comfortable in front of the room. And, you know, and, and I got the feedback early on, you know, being a consultant, traveling around the world, delivering classes to people from all different ethnic backgrounds in different countries. I kept getting the feedback that I seem to really belong. Like I, it always seemed like I'd always been there. And what it was, I didn't know anything about what was going on. I didn't know much necessarily much about the culture of those different organizations, but because I put the emphasis on them, then, then they could express themselves. And then they saw themselves reflected in me and how I taught. So I think as a leader, that can be really helpful too, is to one, find where you're comfortable, you know, the label leader. If I had to have the label leader or if I had to have the label expert, how, how can I define that, that it's comfortable for me to wear that? And then in this environment, how do I approach other people in a way that I feel like I can contribute. Um, and there isn't such a huge risk to being judged or to any of those big existential risks that all of us have, um, you know, in being rejected. And, uh, and, you know, and how can I reframe even failure and being rejected in a way that I can use it to learn and, and move forward or even laugh about it 
and and enjoy and enjoy the opportunity to demonstrate your vulnerability and humbleness. So for you, Martha, the when you were an instructional designer, the the product was what was being judged and is what you uh, put all of your effort into. When you thought about yourself as a public speaker and instructor, and then you were the product that felt uncomfortable. But when you realize actually the product is the experience that I'm creating, it's just a different modality because now it's a live session. It put you back in that position of being able to be a creator of something and um, a generator of that experience to give. And it reframed your, your ego need, your ego Mm -hmm. need went back into, I'm still in service of others. This is not in service of me. Was that kind of the, the shift that you had made? Yeah, that's the, I think the big shift. And I had a similar experience then later. So, you know, then I'm kind of 10 years into being a public speaker, putting myself out there as an expert. And then someone said to me, how can you be an expert on leadership when you're not a leader? I mean, you were a manager at one point, you know, in your career, but that was before you did this. So you're not a leader. (laughs) And I was just like, (gasps) (laughs) right. That was a blow. And, and I mean, and I dealt with that in a, in a few different ways. I mean, one was kind of looking at, well, what does it really mean to be a leader and it's sort of influencing people towards moving towards an end. And, and that's pretty common among all of the different definitions.